Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you for being here this morning on a holiday weekend. I know there's a lot of things pulling us different directions. Thank you guys for prioritizing church. Uh, Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Romans 8? Uh, We're going to be in Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one in front of you this morning. Uh, So raise your hand. We've got people coming down the aisles who would love to get you a copy of God's Word into your hands. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that home as our gift to you. We would love for everyone in here to know for sure that they own a Bible and they have God's Word with them all the time. Um, I'm really excited about this morning. I love this passage of Scripture. I'm really excited about what we're doing today. Here's why. I love it when the Bible, one of my favorite things about teaching the Bible is the Bible oftentimes has courage to talk about things that you and I don't have the courage to talk about. The Bible will often say or read our hearts or go to places where you and I, I think secretly we struggle with, are secretly questions we ask ourselves, but we don't want to talk to others about it because we'll feel like we're failures if we do. And uh, today is one of those days. So I think today is going to be super encouraging and super helpful for every single one in here. And uh, here's what I mean. I'm going to start by going this way. Um, How many of you have gotten like lost before. It's terrifying, isn't it? Like I would say there's very few feelings in life that are more terrifying than when you realize I don't know where I am and I'm lost. I remember one of my earliest memories of my entire life. I was like three or four years old. I was still living in Illinois and I was going grocery shopping with my mom. And uh, my mom had my newborn baby sister. You know, she was riding in the cart and I was walking next to my mom. And uh, like any good four-year-old boy would do while we were at the store, I'm like, hey, mom, can we go to the toy section? Right? I want to get a new action figure. That was my agenda. You know, there's a new Batman thing. Can we go to the toy section? Can we go to the toy section? So finally, we got near the toy area. And my mom's like, all right, Cal, you can go pick out one action figure. I'm going to be one row over. Go pick out what you want and then come, come find me. So I go to the toy section and I'm thrilled and I pick out, you know, there's like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing. I grab it. Um, Michelangelo's the best. So I got a Michelangelo uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. And then I went to the next row over where my mom was and I went and I gave her a big hug to thank her for for being so kind and giving me a toy. And then I looked up and I realized I wasn't hugging my mom. (laughs) I was hugging some stranger in the grocery store. And I remember like, like still vividly remember looking up being like, I am, not, I am not where I'm supposed to be right now. You are a stranger and I am terrified. And I just remember like breaking down, weeping because I was freaked out because I didn't know where my mom was. Just a couple of weeks ago, there's a girl in my uh, small group who's a runner and she was training for a race and had been training for weeks and she went to run a 13 mile race. And the problem was, is the people who were organizing the race, they didn't do a good job marking the race. And a bunch of runners got off track. They got lost and a 13 mile race turned into a 15 and a half mile race. Not great, right? Like it's not good to feel lost or feel out of control or feel like you don't know where you're supposed to be. And so here's why I say this. We're in this series called How People Change. And we're examining what does this idea of growing in Christ, being transformed, changing, this what the Bible calls sanctification, how does it work? What does it actually look like? And I think a lot of us secretly struggle with this question. How do I know if I'm on the right path or not? How, I, how do I know if I'm actually being transformed by God, if I'm in the lane where God wants me and he's working in my life, or have I somehow gotten lost? Have I missed it? Here's the big question this morning that we're going to get after. 
how do I know if I'm actually growing in Christ? How do I know if maturity is happening? And I think there's this fear, if we could be honest, man, life is busy and I've got a ton going on. I've got work, I've got family, I've got friends, I've got school, I've got kids, I've got schedules, I've got relationship tension, I've got holiday weekends. My schedule is full, there's a ton going on. And is it possible that I'm around the things of God, but I'm actually just going through all the motions, living my life, and God's not actually involved in any of it? Have I tricked myself to believing that I'm on a path of growth that I'm not actually on? This is what Paul's going to deal with today. And what's so cool about this passage is Paul's going to give us insight into how people who are growing and maturing in Christ actually think. And he's going to give us four indicators for how you and I can know that we are growing and maturing in our relationship with Jesus. So look at verse 18. Here's what he says. He says this. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that, w- that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All right, so here's the first indicator that I'm on the path of maturity. And this is true for all of us. Here's what it is. I understand and endure brokenness. Part of growing in Christ and maturity in Christ is we understand why there is suffering and brokenness and we endure through it. It's interesting. Paul's saying that one of the markers of maturity is I see the world rightly. I understand what's going on. And look at verse 18. He's like, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. Do you see how vague that is? Like when he says, I consider these sufferings, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the fact he's in prison? that he's been falsely accused, that he's awaiting an unfair death and an execution for following Jesus? Is that the suffering he's talking about? Is he talking about the suffering for the fact that the churches he's planted, many of them are being chewed up by false teachers and there's division and there's immorality and there's all these issues and he's looking back on his life work being like, man, is this even gonna hang on? Is this going to to, to stay the course or is it gonna get wiped out? Is it that suffering? Or is it the suffering from Romans 7 when he's like, man, I fight myself more than I fight anyone else, right? The very things I want to do, I can't. And the very things I hate doing, I do all the time. You know what the answer, church? I think it's all of it. He says, all of it is suffering. Remember a couple weeks ago, I threw this on the screen, a helpful principle that life is hard, frustration and suffering are normal, and God is exceedingly good and faithful in the midst of it all. Paul gets this. He's like, our world is broken, which means a large part of the human experience is brokenness, right? A bunch of us, we're going to leave here and we're going to go hang out with family for the holiday weekend. Can I remind you? There is no perfect family, right? A lot of us are entering into brokenness as we do that. There is no perfect job. There is no perfect country. There is no perfect marriage. There is no perfect church. Anything that you and I enter into in this world will have aspects of brokenness in them because of sin. 
So to understand this, we need to understand some things practically. Here's the first. I get that hurt will happen. You and I are going to experience suffering and hurt and pain. Christians who are growing and on the path to maturity understand that a hurt is a part of any meaningful relationship. And when they are hurt, they are not knocked flat on their back. We don't lose our faith and we don't use it as an excuse to stay on the sidelines. All right, let's get real. One of the things I've heard hundreds of times leading this church is people be like, you know, I really haven't been going to church for a while um, because the last church that I was at, I, I really experienced some hurt at that church. And so I haven't been able to kind of re-enter into worship or re-enter into community. I'm still getting over the hurt that's in my past. Or another thing I'll hear all the time is, yeah, I don't think small groups are for me. And I tried to be in a small group, but it didn't go well. And some people were unkind to me or they said some things that I don't appreciate. So now I I, um, know that I should be loving and caring and engaged in relationship with people in the church, but I just can't do it because I've had a bad experience. Now look at me. These are statements of immaturity. Hurt is not an excuse to not get after the things the Lord has called us to. Can I tell you a secret? If everyone who followed Jesus used hurt as an excuse to bail on the church and on what the Lord has called us to, can I tell you there'd be no pastors? They wouldn't exist. There'd be no elders. There'd be no leaders. There'd be no small group leaders. There would be no enduring followers of Jesus. When imperfect people who are still battling their sinful nature gather together, hurt is always going to be a part of that equation. So guess what we do? We forgive and we move forward and we continue to love and we continue to pray and we continue to care and we continue to lean in. You know why? Because that's what Jesus did for us, didn't he? And a love of Christ compels us to continue to move forward, understanding that this world is broken and sin destroys relationships. But we understand that, listen, our eternity is coming, but it's not today. Here, we've been called to honor the Lord in the midst of the hurt that we feel. Here's the next thing we need to get practically. Suffering results in longing, not resentment. Suffering results in longing, not resentment. Look at verse 19. Paul does something really interesting here. He says this. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay, here's what he's saying. Paul uses this term called personification, and he starts to speak as if he could talk for creation. And here's what he's saying. He's saying creation, our world, it didn't sign up for this brokenness. And it's not creation's fault. Creation was created by God without sin and perfect. And guess what messed it up? We did. And he says, when he subjected it to futility, he's saying, when Adam sinned in the garden and rejected God's rule and reign over our life, sin, or cre- sin fractured creation itself. 
that the entire world was broken because of sin. That is how devastating our rejection of God was. And it says creation is longing, it's groaning. It's like, I didn't sign up for this. Can Jesus, can you please come back and restore things to how it were was before sin devastated the creation? Look at me. Why is there famine? Why is there flooding? Why is there cancer? Why is there disease? Why is there loneliness? Why is there anxiety? Why is there war? Why are there scams? Why are there kidnappings and shootings? Why do relationships fall apart? It's because sin has broken God's creation. Our world is broken and it is not our home. You will not find a utopia here on this earth. There's no way to create a bubble to protect us from suffering. So here's the question, what do brokenness and suffering do? Do they move us towards God or do they move us away from God in resentment? Well, look what he says in verse 23. And he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's saying that this brokenness that this should move us towards longing for Jesus to come back and restore things and make things right. All right, again, hear me. What skeptics wanna do, what immature believers wanna do, they wanna blame God for the brokenness in this world, right? How many of you heard the argument, how could a good God allow X, Y, or Z to happen, right? We hear this all the time. Listen, but when we understand, when we're growing and being transformed in Christ, we say, whoa, 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 wait a second. God is not the one who fractured creation, our sin was. And we are more hyper aware that we are the problem. It should create a hatred for the sin and selfishness and rebellion in our heart. And we see that, listen, even though God didn't break creation and even though we rejected God, guess what God did? He entered into the brokenness. He entered into the suffering. He died to pay the penalty for our rebellion and our rejection. And he is redeeming us and he is saving us out of the brokenness that we created. All glory and honor to him. Amen. The suffering actually moves us towards Christ out of gratitude that, man, you have saved us and been so good to us even when we didn't deserve it. Then here's the third. Uh, we have to understand that steadiness is a high value for us. Look at verse 18. I love Paul's attitude. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's not freaking out about the pain and suffering. He's like, listen, yeah, we're suffering. There's brokenness. Life is hard. But compared to what's coming, this won't, doesn't even hold a candle to it. He's like, in a million years from now, we're going to be looking back and be like, man, like I barely even remember my life on earth. That was such a small moment compared to the eternity of joy and victory and love I have with Jesus Christ. He's like, what's coming is so great that what I'm going through right now, it is worth it. So I have a friend um, of mine who goes to our church and uh, he worked in the police department. And uh, he worked there for a long time and uh, he had kind of bounced out and was doing some consulting work, doing some different stuff. And then his old boss called him and he said, hey, I need you to go back into the police force. He goes, I've created the perfect job for you. It's a detective role. It fits your skill sets perfectly. You're going to have great hours. There's going to be a ton of flexibilities. It's going to be an amazing thing for you. You were built for this job. And my friend was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And the boss is like, there's one catch. Because you're re-entering back into the police force, I can't give you the promotion right away, but you're going to have to spend six months building up tenure again, and you're going to have to be on a shift that works the night shift, and it's going to be brutal. 
And so he and his wife, they prayed about it and they talked with people who gave them counsel and they're like, all right, we're going to do this. We can endure a really, really difficult six months because what's in the horizon is going to be great for our family. And I remember I ran into him at a school function about three months into the process and his eyes were bloodshot and he looked awful. And I'm like, how's it going, bro? He's like, not great. He goes, I barely see my wife and kids. I'm exhausted. My sleep schedule's all screwed up. My wife and I feel like we're just two ships passing. Like it is brutally difficult, but guess what? I've only got 90 more days. I can hang in there three more months because the prize that I'm going for is worth it. And I'm like, man, that's a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? We don't freak out and get tossed by the waves to and fro when suffering and hard times hit. We're like, man, this is part of what sin has done. But what is coming for us is so great. And this leads to the next point, that brokenness and suffering do not touch my hope. Brokenness and suffering do not touch my hope. Look at verse 24. You see it right here. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now a hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see and we wait for it with patience. Paul is saying here that even in the midst of brokenness and suffering, we have a hope of redemption that is unchanging. Um, I know Pastor Chris talked about this last week, um, but a week ago on Friday, um, I lost someone in my life who was wildly influential for me, even though I never met him. And he was a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. And uh, Tim Keller is a man who preached God's word faithfully for decades, had a massive platform, massive impact, and just faithful to the end. And I've listened to so many of his sermons. He's had an impact on how I preach the word of God, how I view the word of God, just a, a huge part of my life in, in that sense. And I'd known that he was sick. I knew that he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he had a very slow moving form of it. My grandpa got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, so I knew there's no real cure for that. And... Um, I knew that he was getting worse, and I remember reading Thursday night an update that he was taken home from the hospital and put on hospice. I knew that the end was very, very near, um, but on Friday, I got the alert. Uh, one of our elders texted me that he had passed away, and if you know me uh, well at all, you know I'm not a crier. I think Mary would say she can count on one hand the amount of time she's seen me cry in 15 years of marriage. I just don't get knotted up like that usually. I'm not like Pastor Chris who cries every Thursday just because it's Thursday, you know? <laughs> um, that was unfair, but you know, it is what it is. Um, but on Friday, like when I saw that alert, like I just started crying. And so I'm asking myself like, Cal, why are you crying? You're not usually like this. Like what's happening in your heart right now? And so I was like praying about it and seeking the Lord. And here's what I found. It wasn't sadness that he was gone. I knew that he was sick and I knew that he was going to die and I was prepared for that. It wasn't like anger that I wasn't gonna be able to sit under his teaching anymore. You know what it was? The thing that got me choked up was picturing him face to face with Jesus Christ. And I'm like, man, this man who defended Jesus and loved Jesus and taught Jesus so faithfully, he just gets to be with and enjoy Jesus for the rest of eternity. And it was like just picturing him, hearing those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. I realized I'm crying tears of joy in the face of death. And here's what's amazing. That joy was shared by Tim on the very night before he died. Here's one of the things his family said was the last thing he said to his wife and kids when they were gathered together. He said this. 
He said, I'm thankful for all the people who have prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, and he goes, Cal, there is something so crystallizing and so clarifying about Christianity, specifically around the area of death, because you see in Christians a hope that is not shared by the rest of our world. This is what Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians when he says this. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. By asleep, he means have passed away, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Like that's a hope that we have and that we share in Christ. How do I know if I'm on the path to transformation and maturity? My life is marked by a hope of the resurrection that is unshakable. All right, look at verse 26. He says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, here's the third indicator that I'm maturing in Christ. I lean into supernatural power. I lean into supernatural power. Do you see what Paul's saying here? This is a massive deal, church. Paul is saying that in Christ, we are given supernatural help or supernatural power in the person of the Holy Spirit. And when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit prays on our behalf. When our prayers are short-sighted, He intercedes for us and helps us in our prayer that God has given us His supernatural Spirit to empower our lives. I was listening to a podcast by Paul Tripp this week. He's a great counselor, Bible teacher, and he said something that really jumped out at me. Here's what he said. He said, a problem that I see way too often with Christians is a spirit of acquiescence. Do you know what that word acquiescence means? Here's what it means. It means a spirit that just accepts things how they are. So we just accept this is how things are always going to be, and then we just give up. And he goes, this is a major problem with the church in America. We just are like, hey, this is how it's always going to be. My marriage, it's broken. It's hard. We can't communicate. We don't get along. We've changed. This is never going to get better. This is never going to be restored. We're just going to have to figure out how to coexist for the sake of the kids. But this thing's never going to change. Man, I'm always going to hate work. Nine to five is going to be the worst part of my day every day until I retire. So I just got to keep my head down. I got to white knuckle it. I got to endure. It's always going to be something that I despise. Here's one. Man, I have no idea how to raise kids in a way that, that points them to Christ. Like my kids are so stinking awkward. And then when I try to talk to them, they get even more awkward. That makes me awkward. And I'm like, stop being awkward. And they're like, you stop being awkward, dad. And like, I just can't do it. Good luck, Jordan. Go get him right? 
I can't do it. I've just got to farm it out. It's never going to be me. I'm never going to be this dynamic godly leader in my family or this thing that I hate about myself is always going to be part of my life. Man, I'm always going to obsess over things that I don't need to. I'm always going to just have this fear of man that hangs over my life, this addiction I'm never going to be free from. I'm always going to be lonely. I'm always going to be uh, afraid in church. For all of these things, listen to me. You know you have power for this, right? You know, the Lord has given you a power to have victory over and in these things. So here's the question. How do we access this power? How do I access power for my marriage? How do I access power for my kids? How do I access power for my work? How do I access power for being a bold testimony? We do it by this. We read the Bible and we pray in faith. God has given us supernatural power. Like, can we talk about this again? Let's talk about scripture. Like how bonkers is it that a book that is thousands of years old, we gather together week after week, month after month, year after year, we open this book and it has the supernatural power to read us rather than we read it. It exposes our heart. It reveals our hopes and our longings and it gives our hearts a hope of salvation. That's a miracle. So much has changed in 2,000 years, but the truth of Scripture, it remains practical and it remains relevant and it remains life-changing even today. It's supernatural power. And then we pray in faith. We have access to God and the supernatural, the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer, right? He helps us when we don't know what to pray, when we're confused and we're hurting and it's like, God, I don't know what to do. The Spirit intercedes with us with words that we can't even formulate. Can I ask you a question? Why does Jesus tell us to pray for our enemies? Do you know why? Because he knows that when we pray for our enemies, that's how we're going to receive the supernatural power to actually forgive. We can't do it on our own strength. But guess what? It's hard to hate and resent someone you're praying for, isn't it? Or maybe it's like, man, I've just got this pride and I'm self-centered and, and I'm egotistical and I hate this about myself. Well, guess what? It's really hard to be prideful when you're on your knees praying to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every single day, we can choose to either lean into the supernatural power that's been given to us. It's ours. Or we can reject it and try to live on our own strength and neglect that power. Right, just this week, I had a meeting that I knew was going to be difficult, stepping into a, a hard conversation. And I would say that five years ago or 10 years ago, here would have been my game plan for the meeting. For the eight hours before the meeting, I'm going to pace around and stress about it. And then I'm going to game plan in my head how the conversation's going to go. And I'm just going to rattle that conversation over and over and over and over again in my head. Anyone like me? Anyone that's kind of like what happens when, when they know something hard's coming up? Come on, we can be honest in church. Don't leave me hanging out. Okay. As I've been growing and maturing in Christ, um, this week, the Lord gave me the grace to go to him in prayer. And, and I prayed and I said, hey, God, I want to honor you more than I want to win. Help me be full of grace and full of truth. I want to have both. I don't want to sacrifice truth for grace, and I don't want to sacrifice grace for truth. God, I need your power. I need your help. I need you to do what my flesh cannot do. Would you show up in this meeting and would you give me a supernatural power? Guess what? He was faithful to do it. And I saved myself like seven hours of freaking out. It was amazing. 
Look at me. You and I live stuck lives. We don't grow and we don't mature because we neglect the very supernatural power that's been freely given to us. Rather than humble ourselves and go to God's word and let him talk to us, rather than humble ourselves and get on our knees and go to God in prayer and ask for help, we would rather live in our own strength and try and navigate it ourselves, and it doesn't work. We lean in to the supernatural power available to us. Like, can I ask you a question? What are the pressure points in your life right now? Is it your marriage? Is it your finances? Is it kids that are rebellious? Is it broken relationships? Is it trying to figure out what the rest of your life is going to look like? Can I ask you to do this? Can you write those things down and just commit to pray over them? And I'm not saying that God's going to solve all of these issues for you week one, but here's what I promise. He will show up and be present and give you a power to navigate these things in a way that honor him. Like, do we believe this? You know, it's interesting. We had a 20s conference last weekend, and it was great. It was at our Grand Haven campus, an amazing time. I got to teach at it Friday night. It was so fun. And uh, one of the um, young people in the conference, later on in the conference, was talking to one of our leaders. And uh, she asked our leader, and she was skeptical. You, you, you could hear the doubt in her voice. She goes, do you really believe that abiding in Christ can have an impact on my mental health? And the leader looked at her and was like, yeah, absolutely, I believe that because Jesus defeated death and he's ruling and reigning in heaven and he's Lord of all. And, and like, can I, can I ask this question, church? Like, do we really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, defeated sin, defeated death, went back to heaven, is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, but he doesn't have the power to transform our minds? Like, do we really believe that Jesus has the power to save our souls, but he doesn't have the power to heal our bodies? Have we signed up for such a watered down, neutered version of Christianity that we don't actually believe that he can transform our life? Because if you believe that, like, what are we doing? He's Lord and he's King and he's creator and he has given us his spirit and we'd be dumb not to lean into it. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you'd be dumb not to lean into it. All right, let's keep going. Look at verse 28. This is one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. You probably have a mug somewhere in your home that tells you what I'm about to tell you right now. Here's what he says. He says, and we know that for those who love God, uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, here's what he's saying here as we close. He's saying that the fourth indicator is that my life is marked by confidence in the plans of God, the purposes of God, and the promises of God. That I've got a confidence that even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of suffering, I know that God is working this together for my good so that I might become more like Jesus. So that when Jesus rises, I look like him and I'm part of the family and he's the first amongst many brothers. That what we are going through, he is orchestrating for our good and his glory. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, when you are in a trial, it's the sovereignty of God that is the pillow you lay your head on at night. He's in control. 
He's orchestrating. He's not absent. He's here. He's real. He's alive and he's working. And I love verse 30. Look at this. Look at the flow of thought here. He goes, and those whom he predestined, that means before the beginning of the universe, laid out this plan that we would know God and love God and be saved. Those he also called to himself. And then it says, those whom he called, he also justified. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus came to earth, died on the cross, paid for our sin so that we might be made right before God. When God sees us, he doesn't see our sin and our failure. He sees the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He is the one that made us right. And then those whom he justified, he also glorified. He finishes it with a promise that those whom he made right, one day he is going to remove the brokenness and the suffering and the pain and the sin, and that will be part of our past. That day isn't here yet, but he promises that it's coming. So here's what he's saying. It was all God's plan. It's all God's working. He's the one that's going to accomplish it, right? He who started the work will be faithful to complete it. So it's like, man, if God predestined that I would be saved and then he called me and then he sent Jesus, he loves me so much. He sent himself to die on the cross. Won't he be faithful to be with me to the end? And that means that everything that I'm living with and suffering and going through right now, God's actually doing it to draw me close to Christ, to get my eyes on Christ and to get me ready for that future day when pain and sin will be no more. God is so good, isn't he? Okay, so here's what we need to do as we close. We need to ask ourselves these questions. Are these true of you? Like the cool thing about Romans 8 is Paul's just give us an, an insight into how a mature believer, a changing believer, a transforming believer thinks. And these apply for all of us. This should be a plumb line or a litmus test of, man, are these things happening in my life? Am I thinking about suffering and brokenness rightly? Am I hanging in there or am I on the sidelines right now? Is pain and suffering drawing me to God or is it pushing me away from him? Am I steady when the temperature gets turned up? Where am I placing my hope? Is it in a retirement plan? Is it in a bottom line or is it in the resurrection of Jesus and an eternity with God? Can I ask you a question? Are you in God's word? Are you praying? This supernatural power, do you take it seriously? Do you access it? Or has it fallen aside for you? And is your mark, is your life marked by confidence? Um, what a cool passage of scripture, huh? There's a lot of deep theology to chew on, but what I want you to see is, is there's also a lot of practical hope for us as we enter this holiday weekend and the week ahead. I love that God's word is practical and it's applicable and it can transform us if we let it. Let's pray. Dearly Father, God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this series. I just am so thankful for this church and all that you're doing. And God, there are so many different stories and testimonies of your goodness and your faithfulness. Um, God, we want more of those. Would you help us? Would you mature us? Would you grow us? Would you give us a hunger for your word and for prayer that is new, that is fresh, that is unlike things we've ever known before? We want to experience your power. We want to draw near to you. And God, we want to be transformed into the image of your son. We love you and we need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.